morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning, to worship with you, to connect with you. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Joel, and I'm on staff here. And if you're not using, seeing my face, it's because they keep me locked in the basement with the kids on Sunday morning. And I only get out on good behavior, and so they let me out this morning on good behavior. And, but they've given me a mic, and Brandon's on sabbatical. Now they can't stop me with whatever I'm going to say. But, it, but it's, uh, it's really good to be with you. Um, Soma is kicking off the new year with a brief series of celebrating Epiphany which is a portion of the ancient church calendar, which probably may mean nothing to you, but it celebrates the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. It's settled between Christmas and Easter, his birth and his death, and during this stretch, we examine his life, what he said about himself that we find in the Gospels. And Epiphany is celebrated all over the world in many different ways, mostly with big feasts, but it's most commonly celebrated by remembering the wise men who came from afar, not ethnic Jews, but wealthy and powerful foreigners, who knew the prophecies of old. And when an uncommon star settled itself in the sky, they knew what it meant. And they traveled bearing expensive gifts, most importantly, humble hearts, to come and bow to a poor, rumored to be illegitimate child in a stable next to a mule. Imagine that sight. Stately kings clothed in power, bowing to this child. And it's even more potent when we remember that Jesus' own people had all the same information. They saw all the same star, but they still rejected him. But today, we are celebrating their humility, the wise men's humility, at the revelation of God by asking ourselves over the next couple weeks in coffee shops, in the morning when you're having breakfast, answering individually, but also with the people that are important to you, these collective questions. How is God revealing himself to you through the scriptures this season of life? How are you responding to this revelation? And how, like the wise men, are you humbly seeking Jesus and offering him the gifts of stewardship, the gifts of your hands. Our series here at Soma seeks to answer those questions by looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus and how Jesus chose to explain himself. These are his own words. I'm just going to read them to you quickly. First, he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Those are his own words. And if you hear, there's a lot of life at the end of those statements. And what I love about Jesus is how he communicates this, this tightrope between paradoxes. He speaks in a common speech that's accessible to every man and woman, yet his words are so complex that scholars still debate over what he's saying. He shares the simplest of truths, but that are so deep and transcendent that we won't exhaust them this morning. The way he draws the masses, but he speaks to the individual. He provokes and he comforts. And my favorite, he exposes everyone impartially, including myself, and yet he excludes not a single one of us from his invitations. Bold statements. Statements that we hope, that we both hope in the deep of our hearts that are true, but they also confront us and they provoke us. My hope is in this series that you and I together will see Jesus make these statements, the audacity of his claims. And through them, we would recognize a hunger that we didn't even know that we had and a hunger that would lead us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And today, no surprise, we'll be examining when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. So I'm going to read you the text, but I really have to acknowledge something to you. Uh, this is a very hard text. It's a long text. You have to settle in. This is a weird text. It's a difficult text. The ideas are simple. I don't think that you will struggle to understand what he's saying, but they are not easy to swallow, and I mean that pun to its fullest potential. This is, this is how no mere man talks. This is Jesus in love. Jesus in love is intentionally a, trying to provoke his listeners to shake them from their overindulged food coma, 
to what is real. And because it is a long and challenging text, I'm going to ask you, although I believe you do this every week, but I'm going to ask you to dig in. I want you to turn, your, open your Bibles. If you have your phone, if you have the blue Bible underneath the chair in front of you, I don't want you to just settle to wait for me to explain it afterwards. I want you to actually follow along. I want you to pay close attention. I want you to ask yourself as you're reading this, what stirs you? What provokes you? What comforts you? And how is Jesus revealing himself through this passage? What you're about to read is far more important than anything I'll say afterwards. So if you're going to pay attention, pay attention to that. So if you could, please turn to page 520 in your blue Bible, and I will read John 6, 1 through 59 for us. I'll give you a moment to turn there. John 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So lifting up his eyes, then seeing the large crowd that was coming to him, Jesus turned to Philip and said, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them even to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is coming into the world. But perceiving that they were about to come and make him their king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they started across to the Sea of Capernaum. Now it was, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near their boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. But on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. But his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near and the, the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to them, what must, we, what, must, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to them, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? 
You know, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he was from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then Jesus disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. That is a lot. My hope is that you actually reading and following on is that you saw with spiritual eyes and your hearts were stirred by what you read. We recently ended a series in the book of Exodus, and it seems this morning that we have not left at all. I almost titled this The Echoes of Exodus because it seems like one giant summary of the book. Jesus is using what the Jewish people know, their treasure, their heritage of the Exodus, to speak love to them. If you've forgotten, it was just a couple months ago, I'm going to refresh your memory on the book of Exodus if, and if you are, did not, you're not familiar, did not grow up in church, I want to share with you a summary of the people, of the history of God's people. The book of Exodus chronicles God's people being delivered from political and spiritual oppression, slavery at the hand of mighty Egyptians, and through a string of miracles culminating in the parting of the Red Sea, God's people up against the sea, God not only delivered his people from slavery, but he made a statement to the world. These are my people. I have heard their cries. I have chosen them to be my treasured possession, my ambassadors to the whole world. I will fight for them, and through them I will bless and love the whole world. 
But the story continues. He leads his people into the desert where there's no food and drink. And there he miraculously feeds them with bread from heaven, manna, that they did nothing to deserve, nor work to, to receive it. Later, Moses, their man of God, ascends a mountain to receive word from God to retrieve the Ten Commandments. And upon returning, he sits down on the mountainside and teaches about what is truth and what is reality. A few chapters later, because of his great love for his people, God desires to dwell amongst his people in the middle of a desert, and so he instructs him to build a tent, a tabernacle, for him to dwell amongst his people and to travel with them through the desert for 40 years. And all the while, the Israelites are vacillating between devotion to God and a grumbling and complaining to God that things were better under Egyptian rule. Desiring to do their own, go in their own way, their appetites were for different tastes than what their God was providing for them. But God, always a big but God here, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God continued to show them that he is their father. They are his precious children, and he alone was their source of life and satisfaction. So with the scenes in your mind, the slavery, the deliverance, the food from heaven, the man of God leading his people to the edge of a large body of water, miraculous provision of food, they did nothing to work for, and God coming to dwell amongst his grumbling and unsatisfying people, what I want you to do is to picture these things in your mind, imagery in your mind, and fast forward all the way, 1,500 years into the future, and where do we find God's people? In the exact same place. Different circumstances, different time, different place. We find the descendants of those very same people, and nothing has changed but the date and the location. They are still politically and spiritually oppressed, but by a different world superpower, the Roman government. They are in their promised land, but they are still filled with all the same longings of their ancestors, filled with hunger for freedom, political freedom, spiritual freedom, free from the cares and the fears of life. Some are fearful for their faith and their heritage. Some wonder, does God even care? Is he up there? Will he keep his promises? Some are just worried about where they're going to get their next meal. Does my spouse love me? Will my kids turn out okay? Pressed in on all sides, they find themselves sitting beside another sea, on a mountainside, being fed miraculously and taught about true reality by a man who not only claims to be a man of God, but claims to be God himself. And as we see in the text, all of this is on the eve of the Passover. And if you need to know a little history about the Jewish tradition of the Passover, it is their national holiday. They are celebrating the Exodus, where nationalist fervor and the ache for God to deliver his people again is at an all-time high from these political tyrants. There is a, a tension in the air, a, a fervor, a, a political uprising. Come on, let's do something. Because they're remembering that God had done it before. This is striking. The consistency. It blew my mind when I was, when I was able to sit and, and study the word this week to see the consistency. So I want to ask you, ask you, who might be in that crowd? It's one of my favorite things to do when I read, especially the Gospels. And we have to be careful, we have to be cautious not to read too much in the text. But who might be in the crowd listening to Jesus? We have a crowd of people here this morning. What would those people be hoping for? Perhaps a family, a mother and a father with young children, They've traveled from afar to celebrate the Passover and God, uh, the mom is pulling her hair out because the baby has blown out its loincloth for the fifth time and the dad's back is broken from being a pack mule but his bones are weary more from trying to lead and provide for his family in a weary time and troubled times. Or maybe in the crowd, you, there it's full of young men, zealots, 
with a boiling religious fervor, frustrated by the Roman oppressors and their weak religious leaders, these men have heard the stories of old and they long for a revolution. And in the night they say to themselves, maybe together around a table, why can't it happen again? They cry out, God, I believe you can do this. But really, they're not content to wait on God to deliver them. Revolution's coming. We have to rise up. Or maybe you can imagine the proud intellectual religious leaders who in their mind are the gatekeepers for their people. They are tasked with holding it all together, maintaining this Jewish heritage while keeping peace in the Roman occupation. And they sit watching this young Jesus shrouded in controversy, born in sin, supposedly, speaking with such authority and wisdom and conviction. And the people are flocking to them. Young, hip, he's got great hair, whipping everyone into an emotional fervor. And they say to themselves, you know what, we really want to believe in him too. We want to believe what he's saying, you know, wishing things were different. We wish we could get all excited and emotional about this so-called Messiah. But you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. We can't be too hasty to believe in Jesus. Conservatism wins the day. That's our job, to be the gatekeepers. I don't know, but this is too good to be made up. Jesus is setting the stage at every level to reveal himself. And I believe looking here this is the intent of the passage that he wants to show them that i am the i am from the exodus and this is not a new exodus this is the exodus this is the completion that was started in genesis and will be completed at the cross it may not be one that you want but it is the true and final exodus the king is here and he is leading his people out of their earthly kingdom of oppression into an eternal one I see here that Jesus is making three things clear about this true exodus. And this is what I think. The, he's saying to this crowd of people, the bread is here. Two, the bread knows what you are really hungry for. And three, the bread satisfies your hunger fully. So let's look at this. Don't just take it from me. Let's look at it. The bread is here. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah that you've been looking for. I'm not just Moses, I'm not even just a better Moses, the God of Moses is here, the I am. And to top all that off, he makes another audacious claim. I am the God of Moses, and I will also be the bread that will give my flesh for you to consume. He says in 32 to 33, bread, I am the bread from heaven, believe in the one whom he has sent. That's a deity claim. 40, 54, 27 to 29, he says, all that the Father gives me, I will raise up at the last day. That is a deity claim. He says, as the Father abides in me and I have life in the Father, so I will give life to the world. That's a deity claim. He's equating himself with God. He says, I'm the life of the world. I will give life to the world. And 50, 59, 50 through 59, 35 and verse 27. All of these places, God is being unmistakably clear. Jesus is saying, he's not just another religious teacher. He's not speaking in code. The people knew what he was saying. He is speaking as clearly as he can. I am God. I'm the one you're looking for. Now, this was for a Jewish audience, but since we here are not, we, that these were, the Jewish audience was concerned with prophecies, but we're not really here this morning looking for the fulfillment of prophecies. But I want you to maybe consider looking around you with the, at the world that's saturated with the grandeur of, of a grand designer. And so I'm going to use bread for obvious reasons this morning. Let's take bread, for instance. Who was the one who created the yeast that caused the chemical reaction to create dough to rise? 
and then be baked by a fire at just the right temperature so that dough produces something that comes out of the oven with a delicious aroma that makes your mouth water. More than that, what about how you respond to that bread? We eat with emotion. With delight, we rip off a chunk of bread and we slab some butter on it. And when you sink your, sink your teeth into it, it explodes with a savory and satisfying taste. Something that is a borderline romantic culminating experience that ends in the form of a culinary ecstasy. That's why there's whole Instagrams that are based off looking at food. We scroll looking at other people's delicious meals and what do we do? We long to taste it. You're like, wow, that's beautiful. I'm sure it smells great. I hope it tastes good. I know many of us don't make our own bread anymore. In some ways, it's, it's hard for us to grasp this because these people were so intimately aware of what it meant to make bread daily. The process of it and the joy of it, possibly joyful. Maybe it wasn't always fun to make bread, but the process is joyful to watch. And since we're removed, we've almost lost a direct tie to the creator. We just show up and we grab a loaf of bread and we forget of the process that it took and who is at the origins of that process. That experience of bread making and bread eating, is that the type of process that seems like it's been randomly shot out of chaos for the purpose of survival? Can we enjoy pleasure and feel emotion and observe something as beautiful as baking or hiking and so many of our life experiences and simply and merely explain them away by utilitarian functionality? They scream, I am a gift. I was designed for your good pleasure, to give life, not just nourishment, but enjoyment to the point to point you to something beyond the physical and temporal, but to point you beyond it to the gift giver. And here we see Jesus saying to his people who have experienced his goodness and been taught of his good design for life and flourishing, I am the I am. I am the designer of life and bread and of the hunger and the longing that you feel. I am here to show you that your physical freedom you long for, just like the hunger for bread in your belly, is meant to point you to the fact that things are not as they seem. The spiritual world is of greater value than the physical. Yes, the physical matters. And it's important, but it's only important as it's properly ordered behind our spiritual eternity, our spiritual eternal realities, that we were made for God and to be with him in eternity. And that eternity is knocking at the door. The delivery man is here. The true bread from heaven has arrived. Which leads me to the second point that I believe Jesus is making. The bread knows what you are really hungry for, and it's not what you think. I wish we had time to read 25 to 36 to make this point. You can do it at a later time. But he's saying to them, you think this is the thing that you're hungry for. Whatever that thing is, in this case, it's political and spiritual freedom. He is showing his people that they have it all wrong. They are looking at their physical and their temporal circumstances. They want health, wealth, and prosperity. They want to be free from cultural expectations. They want to see their people rise up to a place of prominence again and bring back the glory days of old. They say under their breath, come on, Jesus, raise up. If you're really the I am, then make them pay the way Pharaoh had to pay for what he did. That's why they try to make him king in verse 15. It's not because they think that he's going to bring about this eternal kingdom. They want him to be the one who overthrows the Romans. And Jesus perceives this and he runs away because he knows they are blinded by their physical and temporal hungers and they do not see that it's not just another exodus. This was the original exodus all along. And Jesus looks on them with love, like a father of a teenager who knows when his child is trying to dupe him and says to himself, I know what you want. I know what you're asking for and it'll never be enough. There's something much deeper going on here than just wanting to stay out with your friends. 
there's something much, a much deeper hunger and an ache that will only be placated for the moment if I give you what you want. That longing will only increase. And just like this bread I'm giving you, it will only take the edge off the biting hunger. And if I give you what you wanted, it would only satisfy for the moment. Just like the Israelites who grumbled in the desert two chapters after a miraculous deliverance. Grumbling. I'm currently reading a book by Jamie K.A. Smith called On the Road with St. Augustine, and I highly recommend it. It's been a highlight of last year, and I'm still finishing it this year. Um, But he asked this brilliant question based off St. Augustine's life, who is our ancient contemporary. He ascended to the heights of Roman power, and he said, it's all meaningless. It doesn't satisfy. But looking at St. Augustine, he asked this brilliant question. What do you really want when you want blank? What do you really want when you want to be free? Or when you want to be loved? Or you want success? What do you really want? Because I used to be a middle school history teacher. If history has taught us one thing, it's that once you get it, it won't be enough. Go back in ancient history, modern history. Go back the last six months. History has shown us that getting what you want does not make us happy. And if you look at ancient history, I remember just teaching seventh graders about this, that ancient history is a wasteland of people who had it all and hated their life. Our church is nearly old enough to know that this is true. There's only so many things that we can do and try before we know it's not enough and our, our scratch goes unitched. There isn't enough adventure out there. There isn't enough love out there. There isn't enough meaningful work out there to take away the hunger beneath the hunger. And that's because underneath that hunger, the true hunger, the hunger you were designed for, a hunger and thirst for, I believe, two things. The presence, of, the presence of God and peace with God. The first is we hunger for the presence of God. Again, it's summed up by St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Think about that. Do you believe that statement? It's okay if you don't, but think about it. Is your heart restless, and is there anything that you could get that would take away the restlessness? I believe it is true. I believe we were made for God. And if God is our creator, then by God and through God and in God do we find our breath and our being. And we're always asking this. I mean, whether we're asking other people or asking it in the quiet moments of our life, what is my purpose and why am I here? But we don't take that question far enough to the source. The reality is, is if you have a purpose and a reason for why you're here, then there has to be a purpose giver. Purpose does not exist unless someone is given something purpose. It's as simple as that. In order to find your purpose, you must know and be in relationship with the purpose giver. And in him we find truth about who we are because he has placed eternity on our hearts. Think of it. In God's presence and through his word, we know who we are, what we were made for, and the relationships that we're meant to have specifically with him. And we itch for his presence because we know that's how we were made. And it's, in the, it's also in the presence of God that we get a grip on reality, eternal realities, not just physical and temporal realities. What is 80 years in comparison to eternity with God? That's why God blows up their temporal desires for political freedom because he loves them enough to be worried about their eternity. He loves them much, so much to not tell them to care about these physical things, but to care more about their eternal life. Because 80 years, the 80 years that we have influences our eternity. It would be unloving of Jesus to not speak about it. But 
we all know this, we cannot have the presence of God and all of its benefits without the peace of God, through finding peace with God. This is really the hunger that's beneath the hunger. This is the crux of all the things we ache for. We are all desperate to have peace with God because we know we don't have it. And have you ever stopped to ask yourself why I don't have peace with God? Why I rage against him? Why I ignore him? Why I wrestle with him? Why I forget about him? No matter how much we attempt to pretend we don't care about him, he continues to pop up in all the wrong places. Like the quiet moments where the existential crisis comes calling. If you're like me, those come in the middle of the night. I can't get my mind to shut off. Or in the hollows of your relationships that are struggling or broken, your wrestling with God just bubbles up effortlessly, even if you don't believe he exists. In the dark moments full of a life of disappointment, maybe you feel lost because right now you have a life of changing diapers instead of ascending the corporate ladder, or a longing to feel worthy of love, but you can't help but push everyone away. Even more than this gnawing discontent, which we all know, we are overcome with guilt and shame. I have overcome with guilt and shame. Gosh, if, I mean, it's crowding here. If we took 20 minutes with each, each person in here and had everyone be brutally honest, it would, wouldn't take long for us to show each other that we are racked with the pain of regret. And we try to cover it up with fabricated emotions or self-help. We try to figure out how we can hack our way into not being lazy anymore how we can just love myself more so it doesn't hurt so bad when my mom and dad doesn't love, don't love me? Why can't I let go of my or other people's imperfections? Why do I watch the shows I watch? Why is this dark corner of the web really attractive to me? Or maybe this, we can all agree with this, how can I label good what I know is wrong so I don't feel like I have to change? If I can find a mob or a mafia who will not only accept my perversions of life but silence those who shed light on them, what? We just find people, both physically and digitally, that will affirm the way that we feel so we don't have to deal with the things that we know don't give us peace with God. Every person in this room, myself included, Christ follower or not, knows exactly what I mean. And I'm going to ask you, can we just be honest with ourselves? Can we take off this mask and admit there are dark places of our soul and our life that no amount of shop therapy, travel, unhindered exploration, positive thinking will satisfy. Because at the end, we will find ourselves hungry again and again. And usually the ache is worse the next time. And especially when we catch a whiff of the aroma of eternity. We're like, oh, that smells good. We say, that smells really good. But then we realize we don't have peace with it. And that's because I, we, have traded true food and true drink for fake food and poison. The Bible has said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the consequences of sin is eternal death and hell and the wrath of God, although we feel like it's an injustice, it is not. It is earned through our willful rebellion and it is the sin that condemns our soul, the damning sin, is the spiritual feasting we have done on the false foods of the world. Idolatry, disordered loves. I mean, we beat this drum almost nearly to death in the book of Exodus, but here Jesus again is so clearly talking about something that he believes is important all these years later. Because that is the stain that still remains even if you clean up your hands and you don't touch the cookie jar. The Bible is clear. God's holiness, his perfection, his joy cannot be mixed with our grubby, dirty faces from eating the dirt and the dung of this world. And even though he desires our presence, like the Narnia stories say, Narnia is a children's book written by C.S. Lewis, 
that helps mirror our world, to help us understand spiritual realities. He says this, the ancient magic cannot be broken. A blood traitor must be punished for the, or the foundations of justice that hold up our world will crumble. We don't deserve to be invited to this great feast, the great party of heaven. It's been really helpful for me. The Bible does this a lot, but it says picture this eternal feast. The Bible says heaven will be like feasting, be wonderful parties. We all love parties. Celebrations, joy, laughing, wine, the best dinner party, the greatest brunch, the greatest feast of eternity. And God himself is there, which is the best part of it all. His presence is there with food that does not perish, singing and dancing and unadulterated relationships with him. All longings satisfied. No more tears. And if we can picture that, then we can also know how we feel because we feel we're sitting on the outside of this party with remnants of the crap that we have chosen to eat, caked on our faces, matted in our hair, soiled on our clothes, and we know that we've excluded ourselves from this party. Our hearts hunger to be in that feast, in the presence of God, the great lover and creator of our souls who designed us to know him. And I know, I know how this feels. I mean, no one wants to come on a Sunday morning and feel bleak hopelessness. But it is a bleak hopelessness. And it's made worse by knowing what we're missing. And it's tragic. And it's what do we do when we are under such a weight of this? We can't escape the weight of eternity, the the weight of the hunger to be reunited with the creator, our friend, and the lover and creator of our soul. And that is why what I'm about to say was worth going through everything that I just said. Because the third point of Jesus is the aroma of fresh baked bread to a starving man in chains. And what I have to say to you, I'm so excited to say this next part to you, is joy. It's because that's, this is why the gospel is called good news, because in comparison, all the other news that I could read to you, you know, pull out a newspaper, any other thing about how you could save your life would seem like bad news. It would seem like awful, nasty, sour-tasting food in comparison to this good news. And so what I have to say to you is not just true. I say it to you with joy, and I've been longing all morning to say it to you. The bread satisfies our hungers, our true hungers, fully. If we're at a stage in our life where we can be honest, and we get to the point where we realize that we can't work hard enough, get creative enough, can't passively pass back and forth between different things that we like to try to, to provide for our things that will satisfy our souls. We have tried them all and we know our efforts are in vain. But here is the good news. The work of God never fails to provide what we need. There is always food on the table when God is our breadwinner. That is because he satisfies our true hunger, peace with God and the presence of God. This is marvelous. When we feel our hungers to be made clean, the text says this, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. That means that the work of God is done. He satisfies to the uttermost. That's an old word world, but it means the fullest. It's like one way of just picturing. There's not even any more, the uttermost. He satisfies to the uttermost the justice our sin deserves. And he gave his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that those who would trust in him to save them from their sins would have peace with God through the forgiveness of their sins to the fullest. Not only can you not earn your way to God and his approval and his forgiveness and his presence, We shouldn't even try because it would be so arrogant to do so because Jesus gave his life, his sacrifice, so that we will have the pleasures of God's delight. 
No longer must we try to satisfy our longings for eternity with whatever you can find because you've been given eternity through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you are here and you've placed your faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus for your salvation, then you can sit here in the midst of the struggle of your sin. And let's be honest, me and everyone in this room, Christian or not Christian, is struggling in their sin. You can sit here in the midst of your sin and know that you are forgiven, delighted in, and have the Holy Spirit's assistance in battling your sin from a place of victory. And from that place of peace with God and our hunger pains become satisfied. We no longer seek to eat the crap we ate before. Sure, it is a process. Taste buds change slowly. We will battle longings. There are things. It is a process. But now we have a more refined palate. Only the best will do. I will not go back to eating blank. Fill in your guilty pleasure. For me, it's potato chips. I cannot help myself when I get around potato chips. But we won't go back to what we were eating when a fresh loaf of bread made with love by the master baker is waiting on the table. That is how we fight our sin. We fight our sin from a place of changing our appetites. The work of God is this. Not good intentions, not penance, not even evangelism. The work of God is believing in the one whom he sent. Which is saying, trust that I am the promised Messiah. And just like it says all over the Bible, it is only by grace you will be saved, not by works so that no man may boast. Because he has completely satisfied the need of, of our peace with God. We can rest, we can frolic in the joyful presence of God because in his fatherly delight. The bread of life satisfies to the fullest our hunger to know God and to be with him in his presence because he came down to give us himself, not just physically, but spiritually through the Holy Spirit, which allows him to dwell in your hearts through faith. If you are a follower of Jesus, you carry around with you the power and the presence of God. You abide in him and he abides in you. You are never alone. The bread is here. The bread knows what you're hungry for. And not only does he know what you're hungry for, with love he says, I satisfy it fully. This is good news in a world that seems to be tearing apart. This is the point in the sermon where everyone knows is coming. You get to the point where you said, okay, now what? I know it's no surprise, but what do we do now? And like the people in the crowd, we must recognize epiphany. It's not an option. Jesus has revealed himself to the world. He's revealed us to us, or revealed himself to us this morning. And we have the choice of how we will respond. He's drawing us. What shall we do with what we've seen and what we've heard? And sadly, I wish I didn't have to read this, but I have to for my own heart and soul because I need to be reminded of this. The scripture tells us what many of the people in the crowd did. In the text, the masses are sitting at his feet. And if you look back at John 6, verse 60 and 66 through 69, I'd like to read for you how the people respond. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Pause. Can, can you blame him? It is really hard to hear. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But, back in the text. After this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. People left and no longer followed Jesus. So Jesus said to his 12, the closest disciples, and said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
So here we have a crowd, me included, and many leave and they cannot endure the disappointment of what the true exodus is about. They don't want someone to restore their souls. They want someone to restore their way of life. And so my suggestion, my, my, my heart's plea this morning for myself and for all of us is that we don't find ourselves in that number that leaves this morning, but we, we press in. We say we are sitting here and we've heard, okay, I'm not going to lie to myself anymore. I'm going to press in. And this is how I believe that we can press in. First, you must ask, answer the question. Ask it of yourself, but answer the question. What are you really hungry for? And then you must taste and see that the bread is good. So, answer the question. What are you really hungry for? What do you really want when you want blank? Desire is the motor of our faith. Be honest. Do not hide like these people. And when we are found to be hiding, let's give it up. Just be honest and intellectually consistent. Why are you, what are you looking for from Jesus when you come here this morning? What does your topical hunger, trace it to its roots, what does your topical hunger tell us about the deeper hunger? And even the crowd says, give us this bread always, Jesus. But they don't even know what they're asking for. We don't have that same excuse this morning. We are not unaware. What do you really want when you want power, when you want to be significant, when you want security, when you want love? Let us all be honest with ourselves, first individually, but then to say it to people around us so that we can no longer hide. Let's be honest with the person sitting next to us. Because eventually we will all get what we wanted and find that it did not satisfy. In reality, your deepest longings, your hunger is rooted in the truth that you were made for the presence and the peace of God. Your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. And once you've acknowledged what you were really hungry for, this is the fun part, you get a taste and see that he is good. If you are a follower of Christ and you've already have tasted and received Jesus as good, that is, that is believing, tasting, not just intellectually, but tasting and believing and savoring Jesus as your Savior, I want to ask you, how, are your, how, are you hung, how hungry are you today for the true bread and the true drink? How are your taste buds? Have we scorched them on food we shouldn't have eaten? Have we spoiled our appetite on lesser things? I know that I have. And today, I want to return and invite you and encourage you today, return hungry back to God. Acknowledge that he tastes better and is more satisfying than social acceptance, financial security, political power. Taste and see. Believe the scriptures when they say that we can feast on the Lord and he will satisfy the longings that we were even too afraid to say, but he already knew. Your God loves you. He made you. And most importantly, he broke his body for you so you could have the choicest of spiritual foods. So step fully up to God's table and roll up your sleeves and dig in. Feast on his grace. These are the things that we want to feast on. You can never comprehend his love for you. In Ephesians, you'll read it later here, it speaks of his immeasurable heights and depths of his love for you in the cross. Feast on his goodness. Look at the works of his hands. Movies, foods, birds, relationships, all of those things are for our enjoyment. So when you sit down at brunch today with the people that are, that are with you, those are most important, but then the food that you will eat, enjoy them to the glory of God and say thank you. If at the end of the meal you can't say thank you, Jesus, for this meal and mean it from a place of soul, maybe we haven't had it to its full potential. Feast on his nearness. Because of the cross and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, he is with you. He abides in you and you in him. You don't have to ache. We, by living a spirit-filled life, can say today, Holy Spirit, fill my lungs with your air and my belly with your presence. This, this is a relationship with God. This relationship with God is the food that will satisfy when, our, like our brothers and sisters around the globe, know all too well, when you lose everything for your faith, you're still full. That is why the scriptures say in the Psalms, in your presence is pleasures forevermore. 
or I will satisfy you as with rich and fatty foods. And lastly, feast on his word. It's possibly the most practical one, especially the new year with new Bible reading plans. Jesus said himself, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. David said, your word is like honey. God's word is how we celebrate Epiphany because through it we get the exact and final revelation of Jesus that nourishes our soul and sustains us. Eugene Peterson has said, eat this book, talking about the Bible. And so, come hungry to the scriptures and have your fill of Jesus by feasting and following his word. If you're not a Christ follower, thank you for being here. It is incredibly brave for you to be here this morning. And we are honored that you would give us your time. But as with all humility and an aching, loving boldness that I want to invite you to today to taste and see that the Lord is good. He has been what you've been waiting for. Whether you are here and you've never followed Jesus, not sure what you believe about God, or you've spent a whole life knowing about God but have never stepped into a personal relationship with Jesus, this morning, he's what you've been looking for. And to you I say, taste and see. And when you taste something, what do you do? You only try a bite. You're like, oh, I'll just take a bite. No, 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 I don't need any more. Let me taste a bite. But then you taste it. And my hope is today that the Lord, like you said in the text, is drawing you. You're here today because he's drawing you. Would you take a bite? And I hope that your eyes would be open to the richness of its flavor. As the text said, if today the Lord is drawing you to him, if your hungers are no longer pacified with lesser things, you can't stomach one more day of false food. Today is a day to look at Jesus and say, I long for your presence. Say to him today, be my peace, wash me, forgive me so that I may sit at your table. I run to you in faith, trusting your salvation. As Jesus said, he will raise you up on the last day. As I wrap up, I need to share with you something that I came across, a man who wrote a theology of food and eating, Norman Wiersba, and he said something like this, when you consume food, you destroy it. Your body destroys it so that you may live. It gives life to you because it's losing its vitality so that you may gain vitality. Fake food, on the other hand, things that we weren't meant to eat, stuff that's hidden in our foods, actually does the opposite. And when we eat it, although it may taste good and we may go on living for a period of time, it begins to destroy us from the inside out. It has the opposite effect. It steals your vitality. But true food is destroyed on your benefit, for your benefit. And so together, I'm with you this morning, I want to acknowledge that false foods will never humble themselves to give me life. Jesus knew this, and although he himself was God and was perfect and deserved all the glory, humbled himself and broke his body and spilled his blood, what kind of love do you have to have to do that for an enemy? You, everyone in this building, no one dies for their enemy except Jesus. And that is because he loves us and he longs for us to come back home and eat the bread under his roof. The crowds gathered the crowds disperse. And my, the beg of my heart this morning, the ache of my heart, is that we do not leave any bread on the table today. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you. True food and true drink, given for the life of the world. And all we have to do, all we get to do, is taste and see that it is so good and feast on it all the days of our life. And we will never go hungry.